Fresh Economic Thinking podcast. New ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. G'day, Cameron. How have you been? Hi, Jonathan. Very well, mate. Very well. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, I was interested to see you appeared in front of the Senate Economics Committee on the Housing Australia Future Fund Bill. Um, And it was fun to read your first, your Substack article on this. Uh, The first subheading was, The Fund is Stupid. (laughs) Yeah, well, I feel like um, sometimes when we have a policy debate, we are a little bit too polite and a little bit too bogged down. And I just wanted to make clear upfront that spending $10 billion on the share market is not a housing policy. It's not an anything policy. It might be a sort of financial risk management policy, but uh, it's, it's not helping us do anything for the housing market. And you know what's ridiculous? I think there's been a strong effort to portray this $10 billion fund as a fund that is building and buying houses, $10 billion worth. Uh, a c- complete uh, game playing policy, this one. Uh, a big headline number and essentially no spending on the, the area of interest. Pretty wild. Yeah. And the as of the date we're recording this on the 28th of April, uh, the Greens have said uh, that they are going to block this if Labor doesn't get serious about rental um, affordability. And interestingly, he, Adam Bant in his National Press Club speech, the leader of the Greens in his speech, made a very Cameron Murray-like statement, I should say. It's like <laughs> it was basically Labor wants to gamble $10 billion in a future fund. And if it makes a profit, build some affordable homes with no minimum spend, um, and if the fund makes a loss, like last year, then nothing is spent. Imagine if the government spent no money on public schools one year because the stock market gamble backfired. Yeah, pretty much. I think the Greens are the only one who've digested what I've said. And, you know, I'll give them credit for that. It just so happens that on this topic, um, you know, their politics aligns with my common sense, but that doesn't always happen. I think one of the bargaining chips they're putting out there is a nationwide rental freeze on every property for two years, which um, to me, that's just game playing and, uh, you know, picking fights unnecessarily to get some press. So uh, yeah, the point being on the half, uh, you know, common sense and, and the Greens politics align, but you know, that that's a temporary position for most political parties when common sense and their uh, political game playing align. So let's just uh, make that clear, but you know, this is going to probably not pass. And what I predict is going to happen is, you know, the Greens are going to dig themselves a further hole um, in terms of being cast as the party that blocks stuff that they want you know they're letting the the perfect be the enemy of the good but i think it's really important to keep in mind that this this is an there's nothing substantial in this policy um you know this is not the good and it's uh it's 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 literally nothing there's no guaranteed minimum spending on building houses in fact all it does is defer future decisions to future ministers, and it caps how much they can spend out of the fund. So it's basically saying we're going to put $10 billion in, in a fund and do nothing and let some future political argument take place. So, you know, a, a little bit silly in my view. Okay. 
Um, tell me about appearing before the committee and what your experience was with answering questions from our senators. So it was pretty funny. You know, I I started with a reference to the TV series Utopia, the Rob Sitch comedy series that you know takes the piss out of uh, the bureaucracy where he has a meeting trying to explain that an infrastructure future fund is a bad idea to some kind of political staffer character in that. And so I opened uh, my testimony to the committee saying, I feel like I'm in a comedy sketch show and uh, trying to do what Rob Sitch's character did, explaining that if, you know building houses today is a future fund for houses because houses are assets that provide future benefits to residents, uh, just like he explained the same thing. So that was pretty pretty funny but i actually you know once i got serious saying how how this has been misinterpreted or misrepresented by the labor party as a secure long-term funding rather than adding risk and insecure long-term funding i got cut off and said you know we only give uh our our experts four minutes for opening remarks or three minutes or whatever it was and uh you know that sort of showed me that the the whole hearing was a bit of a stitch up and and the fact that it was all pushed through this whole review process in two weeks sort of said that as well but anyway that's the that's how politics works there's a lot of games uh behind the scenes for sure and you were saying that essentially like you it was left you thinking like did these people actually read the bills that they're asking about yeah that's right (laughs) it seemed pretty clear to me that the senators didn't understand the words and that what they do is they rely on these processes and other people can tell them what's written there and i find that really uh i shouldn't find it surprising but i found it a little bit uh terrifying that at the end of the day they have to vote the one thing you'd want to do is at least browse through and read the key sections of the bill and not rely on someone else to tell you what it says. Uh, but that didn't seem to be happening. Um, yeah, a, a real uh, puzzle. But I, I again, I shouldn't be surprised because everything in politics seems to get misrepresented these days. Um, let me just tell you a quick story in Queensland a few weeks ago the state government said well we need to do something about housing what we'll do is propose a rent cap now rent control is a bit of a taboo concept in economics so everyone loses their mind as soon as you start saying rent control or rent cap but what this is is essentially adopting a European style limit on how much a a rental price can go up on an existing tenant who's got an ongoing contract or they're rolling over. And so the ACT, for example, has CPI times 1.1 as the limit. So if the CPI is 4% and you're a sitting tenant, uh, your landlord can put up the rent 4.4% per year. That's the limit. So all this does is smooth out the bill shock, right, of of tenants. Because if rent, you know, rent prices change all of a sudden. So we've seen a lot of uh, the return to the city after COVID with these high-income households and rent's going up 15% in one sitting. And all the rent limit is, is, well, you have to do 15% uh, for this sitting tenant in two uh, 
two uh, rental increases, one this year, it's you know, CPI plus whatever, and one next year. So CPI was about 7%, right? And then one next year. So it's just smoothed that out over two years. And we do this for landlords all the time, right? So your land value tax, we smooth it out by averaging the last three years land value so that if your land value goes up 50%, your land tax bill doesn't go up 50%. We go, oh no, we're going to average that out over the two previous years. So your land tax bill goes up a third of 50% if you got this sudden jump and we smooth that out. And yet for tenants, apparently it's the craziest thing. So the Queensland government announced this at 9am as a thought bubble thing. And then by 5pm, all the lobbyist groups had got their uh, statements into the press misrepresenting what it actually does and what it is and then the next day uh, they'd completely reversed and said no we're, we're going to fix rents by limiting rental price increases to once per year instead of the current twice per year limit which is essentially a nothing but yeah that just indicative of the misrepresentation of of actual policy and, and the problem of course is i think if senators are relying on the press or relying on the lobbyists or relying on the experts you know it's very hard to get a sensible debate now there's been a bit of a tension uh, on the twitter sphere at least uh, around uh, the circles that you hang out with on twitter about singapore's new moves to contain uh property prices you're often using singapore as an example of doing things in a sensible way for affordable housing. Yeah, so I'm interested to hear your take on this. Yeah, that's right. So in the last sort of five years, Singapore has rapidly increased stamp duties that foreign buyers of, of residential property need to pay. Now, to be clear, only around 10% of the housing in Singapore is private property that foreigners can buy. The rest is Housing Development Board sort of public home ownership system properties. So it's a small slice, but what's happening in that area is that a lot of money from China is just, you know, getting out and, and trying to find a safe haven elsewhere. And so prices are rising astronomically. And so they increased this this additional stamp duty on foreign buyers. And it's actually now up to 60% of the purchase price uh, if you're a foreign buyer buying your second or third residential property in Singapore. So you know, my point of raising that and just sort of throwing it out there is that the debate we have in Australia is very, very constrained. Like when we go, let's just adopt the rent controls that have existed in the ACT for four years or Europe for the last half century, everyone panics, right? As if it's something radical. And yet we can look at a place like Singapore and say, well, you think that's radical? This is radical. We should be vastly expanding our ability to think about big changes and so that's what that's all about so yeah i, I recommend probably to your aussies don't even try <laughs> buying residential property in singapore at the moment and the relevance here is that in the 2012 to 2016 period there was a huge wave of foreign buying in australian cities uh, especially apartments in sydney and melbourne and so the question is, well, had we had limited that, would the prices had been lower for, you know, a five or six year period in the 2010s? And would that have been better for Australians? I guess that shows that when you prioritise housing as something that's a social outcome that you want, that you want people to be able to afford, um, then you don't care whether you upset investors because you've got uh, popular priorities that you know the majority of people will support and you you just do it 
Yeah, exactly. That, that I think that to me indicates the different culture around housing in Singapore. And I, I happened to speak to a, an economist from Singapore who's living in Australia and and uh, he said, I just don't get the housing culture here, right? Like in Singapore, it's just such a non-issue, right? Uh, you don't talk about the barbecues. You don't talk about prices so much. It's It's you know, so many steps down in importance in your life. And once you get that universal buy-in to housing being a basic um, part of life that's not fancy, it's not glamorous, it's not a bunch of reality TV shows, that's probably the cultural situation where you can say, okay, this is we want to keep it this way, let's jack up stamp duty on foreigners. We don't want to get swept up in this international, you know, property speculation culture for sure. Uh, now, an update on developments on the, um, I suppose, COVID-related issues. Uh, so, I believe you had some uh, figures you wanted to share on um, vaccine injury. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, earlier um, last year, so we've had this vaccine injury compensation scheme the federal government's run for a year and a half nearly. And so, I put a freedom of information and request Oh, sorry, freedom of information request in to get some numbers on that because it's been such a quiet thing. And you would think with all the COVID concerns about, you know, everybody with a bit of a, a cough and a, a sniffle that thousands of people who were injured and had to stay overnight in hospital because of the vaccine might be sort of important context. And uh, so when I... Um, got my freedom of information numbers, there were 2,600 claims. And a recent news report uh, said there were 3,500 claims. Uh, only 126 had been paid out and they'd paid out $7.2 million of injury compensation. So that's around $57,000 for each paid compensation claim on average. Um, so, And what I've also noticed is that um, internationally, in the press, there's been uh, almost this uh, this great lifting. The veil has been lifted on on people's ability to talk about what really happened with them uh, during COVID uh, and what their vaccine experience was like. You know whether they were pressured into it and and the related injuries from essentially forcing a lot of young people to unnecessarily take that risk. Um, so that's what I've wanted to share. Uh, what what's your COVID yeah. news at the moment? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of developments. Um, first, U.S. independent journalist Lee Fung, who used to be with, uh, who used to be an investigative reporter with the Intercept. Um, if people don't know, it's like a left wing progressive news outlet. So he left the the Intercept, and he's now got his own Substack, and he published a piece headlined "Pfizer Quietly Financed Groups Lobbying for COVID Vaccine Mandates." Uh, what that headline means is mandates that are employment related. So to force people mm. to, to take the <clears throat> Pfizer vaccine to keep their job or to get a job. Uh, the, 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 the story is many of the supposedly independent consumer medical and civil rights groups, this is in the US, that created the appearance of broad support for the vaccine mandate received funding from one of the vaccine's manufacturers, Pfizer. Um so the, the story basically says um, at the beginning uh, that in the midst of the contentious debate about Chicago's plan to force employers 
to require their workers to take the vaccine. The president of the Chicago Urban League, which is a, a black community organization, appeared on TV to dismiss complaints that such rules would disproportionately harm the black community. Earlier that year, her group received $100,000 from Pfizer uh, wow. for a project to promote vaccine safety and effectiveness. Um, although the Chicago Urban League is not normal, I'm just paraphrasing the first few paragraphs of the article, although the Chicago Urban League is is not normally shy about disclosing its corporate donors, the support from Pfizer was not listed in the partners section of their website. He goes on to mention all the other groups that received money from Pfizer to, uh, and that was the National Consumers League, which is a, a century-old corporate watchdog uh, immunization mm -hmm. partnership, which is a public health nonprofit, American Pharmacists Association, and a bunch of other colleges, medical colleges, National Hispanic Medical Association, American Academy of Pediatrics. You get the idea. So wow. you've got a bunch of very uh, influential community groups uh, and professional groups um, that are creating an illusion of support for using employment as uh, a sort of a lever to get people to take the vaccine. Um, wow. And I mean, the, I suppose the, there's a, sim, a sort of parallel thing or slightly similar thing happening here, which is that there's some attention in Australia to two bills uh, in the Senate, two independent Senator bills um, that probably won't pass from Senator Rennick and Senator Hanson. They want to um, prevent employers unnecessarily asking people about their COVID vaccine status. Um, uh, I, right. I want to say, surprisingly, the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, of which I am a member, um, submitted to the Senate inquiry on these bills, saying, basically opposing them and saying that if it went through, it would violate the right to life and the right to health <laughs> of the um, vaccinated majority. Now, I've internally recorded my wow. dissent from that submission as both not grounded in fact and also a huge um, own goal, if you like, for a civil liberties organisation to take this position. But, so, uh, yep. Mm -hmm. To be clear, this bill is basically an anti-discrimination bill against the unvaccinated for workplace. Uh, I assume it's not every single workplace, right? There'd be Correct. exemptions for yeah. certain medical centres and whatnot. But a, a general, generalised, you just can't go and ask people if they're COVID vaccinated. Uh, if you want to do that, you got to really justify it. you got to be a surgical, you know, whatever, or wh whatever the situation well, might be. And you're saying really, the civil not... liberties <laughs> yeah. think it's a bad idea. The civil liberties group thinks it's a bad idea that we should just let employers say, oh, you're not vaccinated. Sorry, I'll pick someone else for the job. I, I got to say that's not. Yes, you're right in broad terms, but the bills don't really say um, anything no. useful. They're not really effective oh, okay. at achieving what it claims to to want to achieve. Oh, so, okay. So like could our, be a bit more... our current situation is the employer just gets to decide um, how to go about providing a a safe working environment, and there's mm -hmm. nothing that tells the employer you know, what that means. It's just like kind of outsourced to the employer to 
determine what is a safe working environment. Now, obviously, um, mm-hmm. there's certain risk calculation involved when you're in an aged care facility or in a childcare facility, blah, blah, blah. So that's fine. There's a different type of risk calculation you would be expected to do if you were just in some ordinary company. Um, but essentially, this bill, because it has all this sort of these carve outs and sort of waffly language, it basically ends up in the same position as where we started, where it's the decision is outsourced to the employer to make up their minds on what is a safe working environment. So I sounds a little bit like uh, the housing future fund where the senators don't really know exactly what's written and how it's (laughs) going to work and that they're just putting out bills as sort of a political symbolic gesture more than a practical, this is going to be a functional law that we're all going to, you know, help to abide by <laughs> you might be right there um i would like to <laughs> however i would like to say that just as in, in my spare time i have seen senator rennick asking very good questions and he obviously is a guy that i mean i don't agree with on everything he seems quite right wing in some respects but he does seem to take a genuine interest in these issues um and the sort of the group think around it and he does seem to take his job seriously um yeah. trying to get to the bottom of some of these things like this uh, so yeah look from what i've seen of senator rennick he, he's well-intentioned and uh well does a good i'll job. let you know i i'm i'm i would consider myself mates with uh senator rennick we've you know we've had lunch a couple of times uh you know i've helped him out uh understanding some policy issues and i think that's a good summary of him he is a you don't have to agree with everything he says but you can trust the guy to think for himself and do what he thinks is right and and i think if we added that up across the senate (laughs) that if everyone acted that way then you're not going to agree with anyone on anything but when a group of people like that can find some common ground you know you're pointing in the right direction because you're not sort of hijacked by the the party politics uh, of having to conform. So so that's sort of my um, thoughts on that and, and my disclosure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that. interesting. Uh, would be good. I think you've said it in the past. It would be good if we had a lot more almost just random average Australians. Like whenever that happens, I think you said it, and whenever that happens, that's sort of a more kind of just – person from the community, not a professional politician, gets into a position like this, they do a really decent job of it. I I agree. I'm a huge fan of sortition. So just randomly choosing senators. And you can see Ricky Muir from the Motorist Enthusiast Party almost randomly got elected and he gave it a good crack while he was there. You've got people like Jackie Lambie who sort of randomly got into uh into the parliament there and she's given it a good crack as well and she's very impressive agree very impressive you don't have yeah yeah and and the point is you are not going to agree with someone on everything and if you are you're probably not thinking for yourself either right um so you've got to appreciate the process of getting independent thoughtful people having a go together to coordinate and 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 understand that the party machinery and those processes actually uh, inhibit what we think the parliament should be like in many ways anyway yeah that you're totally right that's a that's a pet topic of mine for sure uh and just to wrap up on this i guess my concern is how difficult it is to really discuss some of these important 
civil liberties and future of humanity issues that have emerged from COVID because the quality media in Australia, so quote unquote, like the ABC, just will not cover it. So it means that the professional middle class people, people that you know are in civil yeah. liberties organisations, for example, that section of the public that gets their information from the ABC, they just do not know a bunch of important developments because the ABC yeah. and similar media bury it or they don't cover it at all. Uh, it's just, it's one that they've decided that a whole bunch of things are just off limits. They've been debunked. They're a conspiracy theory there and their minds are closed and they're not worth covering. As someone who used to work in the newsroom a long time ago, admittedly of the ABC, I, I know how this works. It's, you know, the journalists are not, they're not different from us. They just decide that, oh no, this is not a story. This is rubbish. And they just move on. You know, it's not, there's no yeah. logic to it. It's just, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, every time I speak to a journalist, I said, well, how do you know that's news? Like yeah. you're So a good recent example is the Pharmacy Guild this week came out um, against cha proposed changes to allow prescription, two months worth of prescriptions to be um, purchased in, in at once from the pharmacy. Uh, and so... The Pharmacy Guild is essentially, you know, a stitched up monopoly provider of, of uh, prescription medicine dispensing. And they came out, you know, dressed in their white robe in the parliament, you know, their white you know, medical gown, having a cry because they'll get less foot traffic through their pharmacies and less essentially fees from the government for doing this. Uh, and I just thought, how is that news? Like the lobby group for this comes out and says, you're taking away our cozy monopolist and, and you're standing there as a news anchor, something that is new and saying lobby group lobbies for themselves. You know, when the community tries to get value back from these entrenched lobbyists, they argue for themselves. I'm like, come on, that's just like, you know, people go to work every day. That's not news. That's exactly the most boring thing ever. It would be newsworthy if they said the opposite or if there was dissent or the, you know, the organization broke down over this, there was some kind of conflict. It's not newsworthy when a lobbyist lobbies for themselves and tells you the same stories they've told you for, you know, 30 or 40 years. You know, <laughs> I, I, and and I, I, I don't know, people justify it as in, yeah, but we have to put their position forward. I'm like, no, you don't. You didn't put my position forward. What about everybody else in the community? Right. Go, just go to a pharmacy and ask people who are buying drugs, would you like to have to, you know, for chronic issues, would you like to have to do this every three, four weeks or every eight weeks, right? And then add them up proportionally to how many there are compared to pharmacy owners and then report that. Not No effort. Anyway, that's yeah. that's another perfect, perfect example. <laughs> yeah. Um, Exactly so right. yeah, just to, to 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 wrap up, I've tried to wrap up, but there's too much to say. But to wrap up, um, I would encourage everyone listening to read something that wasn't covered in Australia: a new 300-page report that came out from the U.S. Senate Health Committee. 300-page report called "Muddy Waters: The Origins of COVID-19." As far as I'm concerned, it 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 gives me everything I need to know that COVID emerged from a research-related lab accident. It highlights how there was a series of previous failures at that Wuhan Institute of Virology. It presents the competing explanations. And as far as I'm concerned, there's just no, no question anymore in my mind. The preponderance of information is this was a research-related incident. 
it was in unintentional, it was an accident, it resulted from failures in biosafety containment. The head of China CDC in March 2019 complained about this lab <laughs> um, being poor in its safety. And, you know, as for, and this received nothing from the Australian uh, quality press. So we must, um, you know, the, the, essentially the, the, the US Senate committee uh, is saying, we've got to look at stopping gain of function research, like this type of research, and we can, until we can really establish guardrails on it. And the, I noticed the bulletin of the, uh, what are they called? The uh, atomic scientists that normally do that doomsday clock about yeah. how close we are to nuclear war. They've started publishing articles on this, on what kind of dangerous virus research we're doing and how we really need to stop it. So how interesting. I don't yeah, I I guess I'm I I'm cautious by nature, but um you know, everything has risks. Uh what I find most interesting is just um how much the the culture or the social pressure of what you can talk about has changed with COVID and how this conspiracy lab leak in all the essentially informed uh, experts. I'm not going to use the word experts. That's a terrible word. It's been corrupted. Industry, medical industry people. I don't know what to call them. <laughs> when we don't, uh, yeah. I, I pretty much, yeah, that, that seems like the most plausible uh, explanation, right? Uh, I just think it's funny how, how we've evolved in the last few years. And, and just we really need to think about uh, the panic and 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 what happens when hu the whole society panics, and I always like to take a big picture view on this and think, in thirty or forty years, how will historians look back on this period? Will they look back on it as um, the governments all did the right thing, people were justifiably panicked, and and we saved the day with vaccines, and or will we look back and say this is just a classic mass panic event? right? We didn't know anything and we just all wanted to do something. And that didn't matter what that something was or what the human cost of it was. And that's a lesson from history for the future. Now, I think that's most likely, but it's quite interesting to observe this happening in real time, the transformation of now talking about, you know, the vaccines weren't everything they thought. It probably, you know, leaked from a lab that was taboo. Oh, you know what? It's actually not as deadly as you thought originally. Oh, guess what? You know, the top scientists were kind of trying to say that and we kicked them off the TV and their social media at the time. Like, it, it's it's nice that it's happening. Geez, I wish it went a bit faster, these realizations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And yeah, you're deep in the midst of writing a book. So I guess you want to tell people that you're going to be a bit occupied in the next few months. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think the fresh economic thinking podcast, um, is probably going to have a little bit of a break for a few months. I am in the middle of writing a book on housing game of homes or some variation of it, which is a grand tour of my views on property markets and housing policy, what we get right, what we get wrong, bit of the housing industrial complex and all the political incentives at play, uh, when uh, the politicians have to keep house prices up and pretend they want house prices to come down and what that sort of means. Uh, and so that's, uh, I've got my head in that's very hard to switch out of that writing mode and getting deep into the ideas and how I'm going to explain things. So yeah, there will probably be something weekly on the sub stack. It probably 
will be related to what I'm writing for the book. Uh, I've got a backlog of things as well, but uh, we'll have a break from the podcast for a few months and we'll pick it up bigger and better than ever. Great. Look forward to reading the book when it's ready. Thanks so much for this very stimulating chat again. Yeah, great, Jonathan. Talk to you later. Thank you.